curveballs. If you anything, if you know anything about baseball or any sport, a curveball is a ball that arcs a bit like that in such a way that it's meant to make it hard for the batsman to strike the ball. The idea is that he'll miss or misstrike it. Here's a dictionary. Here's a dictionary definition: is to introduce a problem or a piece of information that shocks, bewilders, or confounds one, confounds one, or makes it more difficult for one to succeed. It's a term we use, isn't it? You know, we've been thrown a curveball. You know, it wasn't quite what we expected. It hasn't turned out quite the way that we'd hoped. And life can be like that. And I think this is what Esther 3 is introducing us to. Things don't always work out quite how we envisaged it. Sometimes something comes at us out of the blue, completely takes us by surprise. Sometimes curveballs are the consequence of poor decisions, stupid decisions maybe. Many times they're the consequence of someone else's stupidity. Often they're the effects of circumstances we have no control over. Things that just take a hold of us. And Esther 3 introduces us to scenarios like that. You know, curveballs sometimes can even threaten the very existence of the world we know. Take Corona. Completely turned our world upside down, hasn't it? So our subject is this. is carrying on from last time. The God who is bigger than me and my circumstances. And I'm going to pick up in chapter 2. I'm going to work right through chapter 2 into chapter 3. Verse 19. When the virgins were assembled for the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So the focus of chapter 2 has been on Esther. And now it moves to Mordecai. There's a shift here, okay? Okay, we're told that he's sitting at the king's gate. Look, back in uh, chapter uh, 2, we're told that he's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Name is Mordecai. That's going to be important very shortly. Keep that in view. Back to verse 19, he's sitting at the king's gate. That, that, that's not a gate. It, it's, it's terminology that's, that's outside of our realm. It, it's a place. He's sitting in an office. He's a civil servant. He's a pen pusher. Okay? He's doing some clerical duties of administration for the, for the, the empire, ensuring that justice is dispensed. If you remember, just casting back to last week, we've been introduced to these two characters, and at best there's ambiguity surrounding their circumstances. You know, we're left with question marks. You know, it says, you know, Esther was, you know, was she taken? Did she go? You know, uh, you know uh, was she forced into what the king did to her? Did, or did she go enthusiastically? You know, Mordecai, did he stand back whilst this happened? Or did he fight? You know, what was going on? Was he in fear? The whole situation is ambiguous. But here's what, what is true. Whatever the rights and wrongs, and, and we look, but for the grace of God, we're not to throw stones. But here's where the focus is. It's that God's grace and mercy and patience and love comes through. He doesn't write them off. 
He doesn't sideline them. He doesn't condemn them. But rather comes alongside. Transforms their circumstances. Transforms their their hearts and lives. And makes them into two heroes. In fact, the book of Esther is named after one of them. They're both heroes. Mordecai, probably the greater one. But nevertheless, the two of them working brilliantly. So that's the contrast. Is, is there's two characters introduced to us in, amb- in ambiguity, but we know God's grace is working through them. And almost to contrast that, we're told something great about Mordecai here. You know, in chapter 2, he's letting his daughter be taken. But li- listen to him at the end of chapter 2. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate as an administrator, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate the king. That was a regular thing. In fact, he was assassinated less than two decades later. But at least at this attempt, Mordecai finds out and told Esther, who happened to be in the right place, okay, he couldn't just access the king, uh, and who then reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. So Mordecai had great personal risk. Look, you know, these guys could have had him for breakfast. He exposes the plot, saves the king's life, and justice prevails. That impaled. Boy, it's not a kind of justice you'd want to. <laughs> Boy, talk about, uh, you know, you guys thought he was bad enough being sent here for stealing a loaf of bread. Okay? No. Uh, I know, I know, I know, I know, the wrong state. I know, you know, those jokes just don't work here. It's it's unfair. I've been storing them up. I wrote a whole list of them before I came here. And then I throw them all in the bin because they don't work in SA. Okay? So look, so justice was served. Mordecai is is an imperial hero. Okay? The king owes his life to him. And he went down in the annals of the Persian kings. He went down where he should have been. But what was meant to happen when your name went in that book because you'd done something heroic? Yeah, respect, rewarded greatly. You saved the king's life. I mean, that's not a small feat, is it? And yet, it's overlooked. You see, we're going to go from the end of chapter 2 to chapter 3. And the, the heroism is in chapter 2 at the end. So at the beginning of chapter 3, you'd be expecting Mordecai to be. And yet, in contrast to Mordecai had been honoured, it's this Haman fella. And yet we know it's God's providence. It's God's timing. Oh, he will be honoured. Just you Wait. It's brilliant. I love it. Seriously, it's just brilliant. It's coming up. Chapter 5, I think. Coming up soon. But in God's timing. In God's timing. And so, chapter 3 begins in in a completely bizarre way. Any reader would have been taken by surprise because it's not Mordecai being honoured and and promoted. It's, look, verse 1, chapter 3. And after these events, King Xerxes Xerxes honoured... Okay? Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. He was number two to the king. This was the highest position anybody could hold. 
And so look here, the significance of him will be clear shortly. He's the last, he's the last of the key characters to be introduced. And he is, unlike the proverb, last and least. In fact, he's the most evil character in the book. Now look, he's introduced as Haman, the son of Hammer Death there, okay? He's an Agagite. You know some biblical history. Agagites. Who are the Agagites? What is an Agagite? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, related to the Vengemitians. Okay, okay. Hey, anyone who's done some serious, he's on the theology course. Whoever's teaching the theology course needs shooting. Okay. Oh, Nick told him that one. Oh, there you go. So, okay, the Agagites are related to King Agag, who is an Amalekite. Okay, okay. They were historic enemies of the Jews. They were the first people to try to annihilate the Jews when they left Egypt. And God said that there's going to be a war on them forever. Agag was a king of theirs, and Saul, Saul was meant to destroy them fully, and he didn't carry out God's command as he was supposed to. In the end, Samuel has to kill Agag because, because he wouldn't do it. You know? And so, so the Amalekites or the Agagites, same thing, okay, were a war with the Jews. And there was no lost love, uh, love lost between them. And so look, here's the significance then. In verse 5 of chapter 2, we're told that, and the way you introduce someone in Hebrews, Hebrew literature is very important. We're told, this is how it's introduced, he, that Mordecai is a Jew, and he's intelligent, and he's handsome. No, no, he's not introduced like that. How's he introduced? Mordecai is a Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin. What tribe did Saul belong to? Benjamin. What was Saul's role? To kill Agag. Okay. So this is how he's introduced. And, and how's Haman introduced? Haman, son of Hamadatha, is an Agagite. And so the way these two characters are put on stage, and we've got a playwright here, except she's doing junior church, Pip, the way they're introduced tells us that the key factor in these two characters is... Firstly, Mordecai is a Benjamite, and secondly, Haman is an Agagite. There's going to be blood. There's going to be blood. That's, that, that's, that's the point here. And so straight away, verse 2, Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman when everybody else in the court is doing it. And look, and even though people urge him, Verse 4, day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. He will not bow to Haman. Why? Someone tell me why. Don't get this one wrong. I won't tell you off. But it's not the obvious answer. Why did he refuse to bow? Yes, that is the correct answer. The wrong answer is... Yes, that is the wrong answer, Sylvia. Thank you. You went to see youth. Well, was the right answer, didn't you? <laughs> it's the wrong answer. It's the wrong answer because there was nothing wrong. All Jews, all the Jews of the empire, did it. If you worked in the palace, you did what the palace workers did. And if you couldn't, if you, if the kitchen was too hot, go and get another job. If you go and see the queen today, Ralph, you will always. You're, you're going to be shocked that you will bow, and you will not turn your back to her. Because, and that's what every Christian does, okay? 
And, and if you worked in the palace, you, you did what palace protocol demanded. He should have bowed to him. But he won't because it's not religious. It's historic. This guy represents everything about the enemy of the Jews. In fact, this, the Agagite became a name for all enemies of the Jews, not just descendants of it. And it's not certain that there's an exact descendancy here because it became a generic thing. So he refuses to bow. He will not bow because this is the enemy of my ancestor. I saw the, and you know, this kind of stuff exists, you know. I went to a Christian conference once a few years ago. Have I got time for this illustration? Yes. Uh, and uh, there's no picture, Nikki. Uh, a Christian conference and there's a, an Indian fella, a missionary friend that we supported, and another Indian fella, another missionary friend we supported. And they happened to show a map of Kashmir. And this Indian friend went, went berserk. Because this other Indian said that, was, that belongs to India or something like that. And this Indian, oh, he refused. To speak to him. That was deeply ingrained, that plot of land, and it's either it's belonging or non belonging to India. And I said, Look, we can be like that, can't we? And that's what's going on here. He refuses to bow. Okay, and so, and look, he even tries to Mordecai cover his tracks. Look, for he told him, verse 4, that he was a Jew, he kept it a secret up to now. And it's really just smoke behind what the real issue is here. So look, whatever's going on with Mordecai, whether that is correct or whether it is something to do with his religion, who knows? Maybe Mordecai had a issue, reason we don't know about. But here's the, here's the thing. The focus is on the response. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. And, and Mordecai didn't help himself by telling everybody now, when he wouldn't do it before, that he's a Jew, because now Haman doesn't just want his scalp. Look, Haman looked, to, looked for a way to destroy not just Mordecai, but all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This was the entire Jewish nation. Haman is doing what? He's doing what his forefathers failed to do. He's going to do it. And he has the power to do it. Look at the position he holds. And he's going to bring it about. Look, now, he can't do this on his own. Even with his rank, he does need the authority of the king. And he casts these lots. Lots are just dice, okay? Or a die, okay? Uh, they're made of clay. They're num- dots on, be like our dice. He, he throws these. And he comes up with a date, and he does what everyone seems to do around the king. This king is so incompetent. Remember, Mamukin did it in the early on. His seven wise men did it. Now he's doing it. He's skillfully manipulating the king. Look, there is a certain people dispersed among the people. He doesn't even tell the king who they are. But there's a certain people. He goes, and they're not good. That bad king. So look, let a decree be issued. And let's destroy them. And in order to pay for this, I'm going to put into the treasury king an entire year's income for the kingdom. And remember, this king has just wasted all his money on what? 
So remember, it's been five years since she married Esther, and we said in three years' time he was going to do what with the Greeks? Yeah, and he loses it. It's five years on now. He's just lost a lot of kingdom money. And so this guy's offering, okay, almost a year's worth of income. He goes, look, I'll throw in a year's worth of income. And so the king says, look, take my ring. And the king even says, forget the money, mate. Okay, take my ring and go for it. And so verse 12, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. The thing was written down. The lots, as we said, were cast. It was going to be 11 months. A long time away. But Haman can wait. It's 11 months before it's going to happen. Okay. But nevertheless, he wants to get the thing established. He can wait the 11 months, but he wants to know that it's going to happen. Because once he's in Persian law, that's it. And so look, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate. All the Jews of the kingdom, young and old. In just 11 months from that date, okay, in the month, with lunar, they, they use the lunar calendar, okay? It doesn't match, marry our, uh, our calendar. And so sometime between February and March in 487, okay, 11 months on from that date, the entire Jewish population is to be massacred. And so Haman having done his day's work and knowing in 11 months from now his rage against Haman is going to be quenched. We're told the king and Haman sat down to drink. Revel, revelry. But the city of Susa, the Jewish population, were bewildered. And that day, that day when this went out, it was the eve of Passover. It's irony, isn't it? Passover celebrated the liberation and the saving of the Jewish people. And here they are on Passover, heeding of an edict that's to annihilate them. It's the irony there. The author just brings that to our attention. So what do we do with that? We covered our chapter and a quarter. Don't get used to this. It won't be this quick next time necessarily. What do we do with it? What's it telling us? Look, here's a heading. Here's how I'm summing it up for us. Sometimes, in God's providence, life throws us curveballs. Sometimes, in God's providence, life throws us curveballs. You see, the journey of faith is rarely, if ever, straightforward. But we expect it to be. Every time I get a prayer request, I can tell it's shock on the person asking for prayer. No one told me there were going to be curveballs. No one told me it's going to be like this. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to our church? We all must be terrible sinners. No. Number one, you only know about it because I tell you about it. In most churches, they don't tell you. But I tell you so we can pray, number one. 
But number two, because life throws believers curveballs. It happens. If you've lived any length of time, you know that to be true. Look at the Jews. They're reading this letter, aren't they? They're back in the promised land. They're reading this letter. It's retracing their history. Things have not worked out well, the return. The return just wasn't what they were expecting. They're still under some form of occupation. Someone's still overseeing them. Someone's still causing them difficulty. There's battles and there's there's lack of safety. And they're reading this book. And it must be tempering their difficulties. Can you see that? Hey, life throws you a curveball completely out the blue. As a believer, don't be surprised. That's what the Jews are getting from this. They're reading this and Ezra and Nehemiah write it down for them, give them the details. You read those two books and you're thinking, boy, no wonder half the people never went back to the land. Who'd want to go back into that mess? Going back to Israel after the, after the exile was a curveball in itself. And so you can imagine this was tempering their disillusionment somehow. And look at the first Christians. I don't know what you know about how our faith began. But for, it's one of the essays you write. Every theology student, student writes this. Tell us about the persecution of the early church in the first 300 years. Was it severe? Was it moderate? I've got an essay I wrote to college if you want to read it on that. Uh, for, for, for 300 years, the early church had curveball after curveball after curveball after curveball. First by the Jews, their own neighbours. They, they had a sign for, for that, had they? And then the Roman Empire. And the, the whole empire came on them. And they hounded them from house to house to house. You can go now, today, we went some years back, to Rome. And you can get a tour of, of the Colosseum and the history of how people like you and me, Catherine, and the rest of us here who said we believe in Jesus were thrown to do battle with wild beasts. Curveballs. Look, things are a little different for us today. We're not being thrown to lions in quite the same way. Hey, but we're getting curveballs. An out-of-the-blue medical diagnosis. Cancer. Car accident, redundancy, a relationship breakup, difficulty with neighbours, a wayward child, an injury, financial loss, depression, corona, bereavement. These are what we face on our Christian journey. You could tell me a story, I'm sure, right now, either of, of your own experience or the experience of someone to know who, who can tick one of these points, if not more. And you see, the book of Esther, and particularly chapter 3, shows us that in God's world, in his present fallen state, Life can sometimes be like that. 
Life can sometimes be like that. Look, look, just look at Esther and Mordecai. Orphaned at a young age, Esther. Talk about a curveball. Orphaned at a young age. Taken in by an older cousin. Trying to make something of life in exile. Snatched by the king's officials. Four pushed into the king's bedroom. The next thing you know, she's coerced into marrying the king. And now she's relegated to a palace of people she never knows. A lonely experience. And five years on, it's now five years on, you'll see in the next chapter, the king doesn't want to even sleep with her anymore. She doesn't see him. And Mordecai, I mean, he took in this girl. That was a big thing to do, you know. He could have married her. She was probably one of the most beautiful girls in the world. But he took her in as a daughter. Cared for her. And now she's been snatched away. And here he is. There's nothing he can do about it, possibly. And then he does the most heroic thing any citizen of Persia could do. He saves the king's life. And you think that he would finally get his break? No? But the king has overlooked his heroism. And for whatever reason, good or bad, he cannot bring himself around to bow into Haman. And and if he wasn't bad enough that Haman wants to kill him, he wants to kill all of his people. How do you think? Just imagine Mordecai. What was he feeling? I mean, now he's carrying on his shoulder the, the, the weight of the genocide of his race. I mean, is he ever going to get a break? It's just one bad curveball after another. As a Christian, don't let us sit there thinking, oh, you know, I'm some terrible sinner. Or there's something terrible wrong with us. You know, it's just one curveball after another. I better read the two, ten more Hail Marys. No. The journey of faith throws you curveballs because it's a fallen world. This isn't Eden. I'm in Australia. We can make our little patches of Eden. We can. We've got the resources to have create our little Edens and convince ourselves we've, we've somehow arrived. You're not. You're in a fallen world. And that next curveball reminds us, doesn't it, that what kind of world it is. And here's what Jesus says, friends. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says these words to us. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And so here's the thing. We shouldn't be surprised by curveballs. Christian, don't say, why me? You know, why not me? Don't be surprised about the curveballs. Don't despair. That's the message of Esther 3. There's there's nothing particularly unusual about your set of circumstances and the challenges. But here's what Esther 3 does too. It doesn't just tell us this is just how it is. No. 
it leaves you with hope. Because what follows Esther chapter 3? Esther chapter 4. And in Esther chapter 4, we realize that Esther has been providentially placed where she is for that predicament. Before that curveball went... Let me ask you, was Esther placed in the palace before Haman wanted to annihilate the Jews or after Haman wanted to annihilate the Jews? Before. Esther was placed in that place before the curveball. Do you know God has already got the solution to your predicament the one you're not even in today. The one you haven't even entered or faced. Let alone the one you're in. Esther chapter 4 follows Esther chapter 3. And in Esther chapter 4 we see that Esther is in just the right place. To effect a change to that situation. And in Esther chapter 5 the thing begins to unfold. And this Mordecai who never got a break, who never gets a break. And he's a good chap really. Seriously, he's a good guy. Finally gets his break. The king remembers when he can't sleep. And boy, does he get it big time. And by chapter 6, the beginning of the downfall of this Haman is coming to shape. And by 7, the guy is impaled. In 8 and by 9, by chapter 9, the Jews are liberated and are beginning their celebration. You see, that's what the book is doing. It's telling us, A, that we shouldn't be surprised that life throws us curveballs. Sometimes we're responsible. Sometimes it's our own stupidity or our own foolishness or our own lack of wisdom. Often it's just someone else's stupidity. Sometimes we're just a victim of injustice, circumstances, accidents. Okay, other people who are not great. God's providence is sometimes just mysterious. But Esther chapter 3 tells us we're to expect that. And the rest of the book tells us that there's hope. That there may be justice ahead. Hey, let me tell you this. There may be justice ahead for you. That there may be healing. For those of us calling out for it. There may be provision around the corner. There may be an easing of your circumstances. There may be deliverance. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Peace ahead of you. Hope. Real hope. That there's going to be change, perhaps. And even a season of happiness or contentment ahead of you. In God's timing. Here's what a theologian writes. These unfolding events begin to show the inscrutable interplay between circumstances thrust upon us, sometimes unjustly, and those a result of our own behaviour, often flawed. God's providence marvellously moves through both in his good time. In God's good time, who knows how those curveballs may have a chain reaction 
uh, your circumstances may completely be different even a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, next week, before you lay your head down to sleep, there could be a marked transformation in your circumstance. And so, expect curveballs, don't despair, hold on to hope. One Peter says, humble yourselves, hey, humble yourselves before God and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay? Humble yourselves before God. Let him work out what he's doing in his timing. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Sometimes in God's providence, life throws us a curveball. But there's hope. Amen.